It's time for Comfort, Peace, and Freedom with Ken Rusk. Ken's guest this week is Efren Delgado. Efren is a former FBI special agent with 25 years of national security, law enforcement, and private protection experience, and has now added author and speaker to his threat assessment and consultation profession. Ken and Efren will discuss his career at the FBI, as well as his new book, The Opposite is True, Discover Your Unexpected Enemies, Allies, and Purpose Through the Eyes of Counterintuitive Psychology. Efren will talk about the importance of humility in your life and how to gain wisdom from humility. Now, here's your host, Ken Rusk. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Comfort, Peace, and Freedom podcast. I'm Ken Rusk. Each week, I try to interview world-class personalities about exactly what it takes to become successful and their thoughts on my three favorite words, comfort, peace, and freedom. So let's get right to it. Efren Delgado, welcome to the Comfort, Peace, and Freedom podcast. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for being here. You wrote a great book called The Opposite is True. There's there's so many amazing things in here that you, I think you kind of blend your experience with the world with your obvious depth of knowledge of, of things like you know, humility and, 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 and how to live a wonderful life. And I love the fact that you take life lessons and you kind of tie them back and forth. And before we get into that, you've been an FBI agent, a special agent for 25 years. Uh, you worked in national security. You worked in private protection. You've worked in threat assessment, counterintelligence, counterterrorism. And now you're an author and speaker and a consultant. For our audience, I, there's always been this mystery for me that, that surrounds an FBI agent, you know, you know, something serious is happening when the FBI comes in and gets involved. So what was it like, if you could describe what it was like, you know, getting to the point of being an FBI agent and then what it's like to be one of those folks? Yeah, no problem. Just quick correction. I wasn't an agent for 25 years, but my overall experience with spies and terrorists and working as an agent in the criminal division and then protecting people, that's encompassed about 26 years. Gotcha. Okay, great. Thank you. Yeah. So um, the first part of that was I was working national security stuff. So it's it's technically not an agent position. It used to be a super secret position until 9-11 that they started needing a lot more assistance in the national security world. So um, that was probably one of the most fun jobs I've ever had. I'm literally chasing around spies and terrorists and trying to protect our infrastructure. It's only a, maybe a a couple of times I literally ran across Washington, D.C., trying to catch up to a bad guy and getting in the metro subways and cars and very movie like. But most of it was not that exciting, but it's all kind of enticed. But a lot of fun doing that. And the criminal division is the more traditional side where you, you imagine the FBI agent knocking on your door and asking questions or we plan a raid and we we uh, knock and announce and handle the bad guys tactically and then do interviews and that sort of thing. But to answer your question, I um, every time I had to knock on somebody's door, their first reaction is like, oh, my gosh, what's going on? <laughs> um, so that that there's power in that, too. And a lot of the mystery is, I, I might say, by design, because uh, the FBI not being so open about everything really adds the mystery to it, which adds some of the power. And I think good guys and bad guys with their, um, if they have a level of mystique, there's some power in that. So to encourage your audience and my readers, 
keep that in mind too. Sometimes it's better to just kind of zip your mouth and allow moments of silence. Like when we do an interview, uh, I'll call it a pregnant pause is very powerful because people aren't, they start to squirm like, okay, I'm going to tell them more information. <laughs> you know, they don't like the silence. So I think uh, a lot of wise people um, incorporate that into their strategies in life and interacting with other people. You know, I, I, I read a great book called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And I think somewhere in that book, they talk about golden silence and how mm. when, when you do create that pause, the person will then go deeper with more detail. And then all you need to do is nudge them along by going, really? And then stopping again. And here comes more detail because they're on. If you know the, the uncomfortableness of the pause because you're creating it. Yeah. It's kind of fun because they're the ones that are, they don't know what you're doing actually. And yet here comes more and more information, which is really, really kind of cool. So I think most people have an, a real reasonable idea of what an intelligence officer is. You know, they're out there gathering information, useful information that they can, they can then use to, to do whatever this country needs to do. How do you describe a counterintelligence person? So, um, most people aren't too clear on like the the overall view of national security. So the way I articulate it, I kind of compare it to sports, uh, especially like, like soccer. You've got your offense and your defense. The offense is go- trying to score the goal and the defense is defending their goal. So our CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency, their mission is to obtain intelligence from hostile or, or other governments because information is powerful. That's true of negotiations. That's true of that's true of buying a used car. So our offense is the CIA, and their offense would be like the uh, former KGB, now the SVR, or the, the Israeli intelligence, or whatever. They're trying to seek our information and get our people to betray our country to reveal that information or our own secrets. So the FBI's side is we're like like the defense. We're protecting our goal. We're guarding our information. We're making sure we don't have traitors on our own team, which we do have. That's what espionage actually is. And that's what a spy actually is, by the way. People used to throw around the word spy and they think James Bond, but spies are the bad guys. They're the traitors. But at the same time, if you're if you're recruiting a spy, if the CIA recruits a spy from a hostile government that is oppressive of their people then in my view, they're heroes because they're betraying their corrupt government and risking their own lives for the sake of their people. So it's all perspective. And context always matters, like I say in the book. You can't pose any situation without considering the context if you want an objective truth as to what's going on. So again, that's, that's a great way of looking at it. So there are people in our country that are trying to gain intelligence. And there are people like yourself who are trying to prevent people from gaining our intelligence. Right. Okay. Because if you have a used car and you secretly had it worked on and it's working great, but it was an unreported repair and it's, that's valuable information for the potential buyer. Or if you're the potential buyer, let's, let's make the scenario where the good guys we don't want to get suckered. Right. If if you have a neighbor that, look, I heard that car was in an accident. That's intel. And that's intel that the buyer, or I mean, the seller doesn't want you to have because they want a better deal. Sure. So that's like a, you know, easy, tangible, concrete example of intelligence, offense, intelligence, defense, and the benefits, the pros and cons of it. Who can win? Who could, you know, who wants to have the the better scenario? So- 
Um, with that intel, you could go into that negotiation knowing, look, I still want this car. It's running great, but I could get $3,000 off because I know it's been an accident. And I might not even reveal that I have that intel. I'll just, like we said before, keep my mouth shut about it. But I'm confident this guy will not want me. To, why is he so confident in his negotiation? You know what? If it's been in an accident. I'm going to take it. He wants to buy the car. You know, that's like a right. good example of how you could apply that. And then imagine when nuclear weapons are involved now or land. I mean, it becomes really serious, but it's the same dynamics. That's that that is really, really, really interesting. So so tell me about counterterrorism then. I'm, I know that counterterrorism would be there are people who are trying to, um, you know, per perpetuate terrorism against us. And there are people that are trying to counter that. But what, what are some of the interesting things that you actually had to do when you were working in counterterrorism? Everybody understands terrorism from the form of once the chaos has already happened. People often talk about the, um, this kind of uh, intense, but people often talk about the Twin Towers in New York at 9-11. But they often don't mention a plane went down in Pennsylvania and a plane actually crashed into the Pentagon 10 minutes from my house in um, Old Town, Alexandria, when I was living in Washington, D.C. Okay. We, um, every part of me wanted to drive straight to the Pentagon that was in flames and try to help people. But um, I trusted or this is when I was in the secret world in the national security division and we had secret offsite, secret cars, all that stuff. So we can't just go out there um, half cocked and pretend we're firemen or, or whatever. So just take a breath and assess what's going on at, and trust for better, or for worse, trust our superiors to like, okay, let's get some guidance here. We just got attacked. What do we do? It took about two weeks, which was a really frustrating two weeks. But about two weeks later, they they organized this system where we would go to the Pentagon area where it was still in flame two weeks later because of all the jet fuel and that sort of thing. Wow. Then I didn't even think about, but engineers get all that stuff. But I had no idea a fire could last that long. So there were still flames, but our mission was simple. Separate plane parts from body parts, from classified document parts, and put them in piles. I can't go too much into the detail, but that mission itself is pretty intense. Yeah, for sure. And I do appreciate that, unlike New York, because the situation was different, the context was different, they were able to um, give us biohazard suits. And we literally, you're duct taping the wrists and the neck and that sort of thing. And I actually think that helped a lot of us years later not, have all these carcinogens in our system, unlike a lot of the heroes in New York um, who did get a lot of cancer after, you know, running in and helping people. So that's like the, the worst case scenario of a physical, tangible attack. What's kind of behind the scenes of the terrorism world, to answer your question, is um, there's a lot of fundraising going on, manipulation, uh, propaganda, uh, recruiting needy people who are looking for meaning and purpose in life and finding vulnerable people, just like gangs do, just like cults do. Terrorist organizations do the same thing. And they take advantage of these lone wolf type of people craving meaning. And if they're misguided, they will follow because some needy people crave a leader. So that, you know, people could be manipulated to do good or bad under that context. 
So a, a lot of our uh, counterintelligence, counterterrorism efforts were spotting those potential dangers, those potential um, fundraisers for terrorist activity and see how they were manipulating their people. Um, it's less exciting, but just as righteous because you could prevent things early on before it gets to the the fertilizer and the in the van going to the building sort of thing. Do you remember moments in time in your in that particular time of your career that you hit home runs like that where you stopped major things from happening? Absolutely. And, and most of it what never hit the papers, which is a good thing, which means it never posed a problem. There was one case that did go to the paper, so I could talk about it a little bit. But there was this one guy who worked on a branch of of an intelligence agency, and he was planning to sell valuable intelligence to various Middle Eastern countries who were against the United States. And he was thinking he was sophisticated by using libraries, um, their computers, but that's actually how we found him. And luckily we stopped him before he could sell anything. So that prevented some, some of our allies, some of our military from being potentially compromised um, by letting the bad guys know where we were and what they were up to um, from a military point of view. And then a couple other that came out, but unfortunately after a lot of damage was that Robert Hansen, we knew there was a mole that was uh, selling secrets to the Russians at the time. And, um, we thought he was one guy, but then we got onto Robert Hansen. And when it was him, it was obvious it was him. And he's one of the few people that we caught red-handed doing a drop. Um, that's literally there. A imagine a, a black trash bag filled with, con I mean, everything's like online now. But back then it was like stacks of documents. And he was planning it somewhere so that the, our, um, our enemies or the intelligence officers could obtain that. And then there's kind of an exchange for money, power, whatever. And actually, actually, after he was coming out of the woods, that's when he was arrested. But this was after we already knew it was him. But catching him red-handed is a very rare thing, which was great. Yeah, that that's, and again, to, to everyone, I mean, you and you especially, but to everyone that you just mentioned, it is, it's unbelievable to me that, um, first off, that we owe a debt of gratitude to all of you that get involved in these things and risk your life. Like you said, running through train stations to try to find yeah. the bad guy and all those That's kinds of things. That's a rare thing, but it was fun. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm sure you probably felt like, wow, this is as close as I got to James Bond here. This is pretty cool at the time, right? That was in my twenties. <laughs> so you, you really have that type of thinking in your head, you know? Yeah. <laughs> One of the other things you talk about is um, consulting threat assessments. Is that mostly corporate or is that personal or both or? Kind of both. So in the, what they used to call bodyguard in the bodyguard world, now they call executive protection. So in a nutshell, I'll have private clients, wealthy business people or famous people with wealth and fame, which adds vulnerability. And there's also corporate clients that are concerned about active shooters or potential in-house unhappy employees that have acted out emotionally and maybe pose a potential threat. So we'll consult and also be physically present in those contexts, me and uh, people like me and my colleagues. And then there's events that are rare, like weddings or uh, award ceremonies, um, Academy Awards, that sort of thing that have to be protected just for you know the standard like John Lennon type stalkers or just overzealous fans. But most of it's the business and the private clients. So when it comes to threat assessment, I thought there was something interesting that that you wrote where you're talking about the context of goals 
and the vision you have for people you mentor and just people you employ or family and friends, you know, just have a vision, have a North Star. And you often say, be as specific as you can, write it down, articulate it, be specific and break it down to monthly goals, uh, weekly goals, daily goals, that sort of thing, which is fantastic. So on the criminology side of things, a threat that is more specific is should be taken more seriously because just like goals, this is the dark side of it, but just like goals, the more specific the threat, the more serious it should be taken. So if somebody's just uh, been out of shape in a traffic, anger, traffic situation, they're like, I'm going to kill you. And they drive off. You really don't have to worry about that person. But if they're like, I I know your work schedule, you're at this address, I'm going to bring my 45 caliber to your yeah. home as soon as it's on, like that. Okay, we got to address this. Right. It's specific, it's going to happen. Or the attempt is going to happen most likely. In other words, they put a lot more vision into a goal like that than they did just yeah, let's take it seriously. Spouting off. Yeah, right. But um, yeah, exactly. And and everything ties in and and stop me if I go off on too many tangents, but a big theme um of my book is emotion and logic don't mix. It's like oil and water. So when you have a concerned person who who is fearful because somebody threatened them, for example. Those emotions are very, they're valuable and they're real, but then I have to like help guide them to a place of calm and let's now allow logic reasons come in for these X, Y, and Z reasons. Like I just illustrated to you, this person doesn't know who you are. They'll never see you again. This was a random encounter. So, okay. Then they start realizing the logic starting to enter inside of the storm of emotion. So the storm starting to back off. And that's true of many things in life, not just threat assessments, but accomplishing goals or or listening to uh, negative Nancys or what did you call them? I call them negative Nancys. You call them um, something vampire? Energy vampires. Yeah. Energy vampires. <laughs> yeah. And it's really the same concept. People who are afraid to take risk are envious of those who take risk. And people who are um, afraid to go for their goals are envious of other people who are going for it. So the the way that gets projected is like, who do you think you are? Yeah. And if you listen to them, you reward that. Like, okay, that's a mouse I could I could pick on, so I could feel better about myself for five minutes. So the suggestion, the strategy is, when you identify those people objectively, they could sometimes be family members, which is uncomfortable. Put up that boundary. And the opposite is true when you have a mentor or somebody who's always consistently supportive. I need to spend more time with that person. You know, they're going to help me accomplish my goal and I'm going to help them wherever I can. So strategy comes into play with these behavioral dynamics in general. So I went off on a tip. I know. I love love the way you you, you tie those two together. So on a a very small scale, and I'm not comparing myself to any of the experiences that you've had. When you talk about personal threat assessments, all you see anymore on TV is crime, 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 crime going up here, crime going up there, blatant crime, crime in the middle of the daylight, in the middle of the street. I mean, not under cover of darkness. And you're talking about blatant crime now where where the criminals, they don't even, they don't even care that there's 30 cameras probably on them everywhere. So yeah, I I literally had this happen to me a couple of weeks ago. I was in Fort Lauderdale and, and someone, they, stole my phone and they got into my phone and they changed all my passwords. And now they own all my pictures and they own all my history and they own everything. And I can never get that back. So 
what I found out from the, the detectives was apparently there's groups of people that do that and they watch you enter your code on your phone. And as soon as you look the other way, they swipe the phone and now they, they own your life, right? They take your Venmo money and they do all these things. When you typically go into a crowded area now, knowing how much more prevalent crime is now than ever. I mean, I used to go to New York City all the time, walk around like there was nothing of it. Now people are going, hmm, I'm not so sure. I mean, they're making different decisions now. You know what I mean? Based on, yeah. on those things. When you walk into an area that's very public, are, are, are you doing like even today yourself or for me? What would you do when we walked into a into a into a building? Would you would you do certain things to ensure yourself that you're not going to be a victim of that? Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there because there's there's so many dynamics <laughs> to talk about in that. <laughs> but uh, just to put it in a nutshell, um, from like a bodyguard point of view, any situation you establish the norm, whatever the context is, you kind of get a and people do this unconsciously. But it's good to do it deliberately, proactively, especially in the context of potential crime. But you establish what the norm is so that the anomalies will stand out. So it's good to not just unconsciously do it, but think about it so that you're aware of like, okay, this is a concert. There's music fans. People are kind of dressed this way. People are enjoying this way. So when everybody is dressed in, for example, goth clothes to a The Cure concert, and but they're having a good time, they're singing along. But then there's another guy who's not singing along, he's walking and he's wearing camouflage. That stands out, it's an anomaly. Doesn't mean that people who wear camouflage are bad guys, it just means I'm going to pay attention to that and not the norm. Okay, so it's like a game of whack a mole. Maybe younger people don't know who what whack a mole is, but yeah. <laughs> the idea it's a game where the, the, the moles stick out and you hammer it, right. So yeah, it's a game of whack-a-mole. So if I was, I just came back from, a, I've got a four-year-old and he, we did a little Halloween thing in the school for like an hour, but I paid attention to adults walking by themselves without kids, you know, just, it's probably just fine. You know, half the time it was like a grandparent, but unknowing to my wife and to other people around, I'm looking at the, the anomalies because I've got a personal interest, not just I would protect any kid, but my kid goes to this school sure, and they do a good job there. But if somebody sneaks in, I'm going to be the unpolitically correct person that I don't care. I will follow. I'll do whatever I need to until I'm personally satisfied. So the same is true when I'm protecting uh, one of my clients or just anybody I care about in whatever context. And I would recommend that to your audience. It's just people say, be aware of your surroundings, but be specifically deliberately aware of the anomalies, what stands out. And you don't have, it's not judging, it's assessing. So in other words, I could have, I could have been aware of the people that were dancing and smiling and laughing and have a good time talking with each other. Obviously groups of people that knew each other, maybe friends or family or spouses or whatever. And then there's that one person who was sitting there quiet, maybe not really drinking their drink, just kind of scanning the room. So I, I, I could have been, I could have been aware of that person is what you're saying. First of all, this isn't this isn't your fault. And I've been a victim of my car has gotten broken into and, and my wallet, my favorite jacket and my gun were stolen. This happened years ago. It, I wasn't in the bureau. Thank God. That's a lot of paperwork. Um, but it happened afterwards. And and what what made me uncomfortable is what if that weapon is used to hurt somebody? Sure. 
But I take I took solace in the fact that look, bad guys can always get weapons to do evil deeds. Sure they can. I'm not going to go off on this, but Second Amendment wise, who's going to obey the law? So you make any law, who's going to obey the law? <laughs> a definition, law-abiding citizens. By definition, law-abiding citizens, sir. So if you make any law, who's not going to obey that law? A non-law-abiding citizen, aka a criminal. So it's a it's a big red flag to readers, thinkers, your audience, everybody alike. Anytime a politician says, "Oh, there's an active shooter of a terrible shooting event," damn it, it's guns. Let's get rid of all guns. Bad guys are are not going to listen to the rules. Only the yeah. good guys are. So you're you're by definition disarming the good guys from protecting themselves and others, and you're arming and entitling the bad guys. So back to your question, part of the reason crime is rampant now is because we are essentially arming and entitling the bad guys under the guise of being sensitive. I agree that people with um, handicaps or different races or different groups or whatever should not be bullied, intimidated, that sort of thing. So that's where, hey, society, let's be more sensitive and considerate and compassionate with people. No problem. But then like the bad guys always do, they'll take a good thing and start to, they'll hijack it and turn it into a bad thing. And that's where political correctness came in. And if I disagree with you, you're racist, which is an insult to anybody who died in the Holocaust or who was left or the color of their skin. Right. Um, Oh, you disagree with masks? You're a terrorist. You're a domestic terrorist, which is disrespectful to everybody that died at the Oklahoma City bombing. Right. Two, Two or three pregnant women. Like, you are insulting real victims when you accuse somebody else of being that predator. So you could go on and on, but yeah, it's all connected. You could see how it all connects. A- absolutely. And again, that's what I love about how, how you take your experiences and, and use them to help everyday folks. And that we're going to get to the book in, in, in one more question here, which I can't wait to get to because it's such a great book. So here's a fun fact for you. Did you know that only 14 out of every 100 adults describes themselves as happy? That's a pretty low number. The question you have to ask yourself is, are you one of those lucky few or do you feel like there's more to life out there? I've been fortunate to work with some brilliant course designers to create a course that will help you define and build comfort, peace, and freedom in your life. I call it the path, and it is a great way to help you identify what you really want out of your life and to develop the skills necessary to go get it. When you join the course, not only will you receive a digital copy of my Wall Street Journal best-selling book, Blue Collar Cash, but you'll also get lifetime access to the best goal-setting tactics that I have used to turn myself into an effective, goal-oriented machine and take control of my mind, my money, and my life. All of this great information is normally available to you at $129. However, For you amazing listeners of today's podcast, you can get lifetime access to the path for just 99 bucks. And if you do it today, I'll do you one better. Get involved now and I'll actually donate a free course and a free book to any one of your choosing. So you can not only change your own life, but help someone else in the process. And what could be better than that? So just use the link in today's show description and the discount code podcast to get started. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. So, Efren Delgado, you wrote a great book called The Opposite is True. 
obviously it seems like you only listen to the ambulances, right? And you don't see the safety of people going by every day, but all all you hear is about is the ambulances and the loudest shouters or the loudest sirens. And, you know, all you hear about, unfortunately, is, you know, the, the, the FBI and the top of the FBI and the closer you get to Washington, the more biased they are, the more politically biased they are, whatever. But yet what you do is so honorable and, and the whole industry is so honorable. And, um, you know, I've heard this a thousand times. The lion's share of FBI agents are all solid people that do great work every single day. It's a few bad apples that, are, that give them a bad reputation. Unfortunately, they're some of the most high profile ones in, in right. Washington. What, what would you say to a young person that's considering, you know, I want to be that guy or I want to be that gal. I want to be that, that FBI person. What would you tell them? I think it's still an honorable profession, um, but you have more to risk because it's not just um, the bad guys that are after you. There's um, negative Nancy's inside of various agencies, the FBI, police departments, um, even corporate settings. The enemies are not always on the outside. Sometimes they're within our own families. And that's an ugly, uncomfortable reality that people don't like to face. But one of the uh, mindsets I criticize in, in my book is just denial. People, including myself, humanity, we love comfort. So sure. as long as, but we shouldn't love it to the extent of, of objective truth. And truth is often uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So I would support anybody's decision to join the FBI or the police or anything, but just be aware that you will have negative Nancy's surrounding you also when you're, you have this mission to protect people, victims, witnesses from crimes, but there'll be people paying attention to you who don't have the best interests and their insecurities will, will be projected onto you where they'll see you're making progress. So they'll try to pull you down. Right. And I faced that in Washington, D.C. I faced it in L.A. and I fa- I've faced it in the private sector. So I know it's not an FBI thing or a, a geographic area thing. It's a human thing. But anything worthwhile, particularly a career in law enforcement, mil- military or working as an emergency room doctor requires sacrifice. And even if you're not, your your work mission is not protecting people, but it's making money and uh, providing a service or whatever, it still requires sacrifice to accomplish anything. It's an uphill climb up a mountain before you reach the summit. But anything worthwhile takes work, takes sweat, takes uh, bruised egos and that sort of thing. So I think it's worth it. Love, I think, is sacrificial or it's not love. It's just um, emoting. And I I, I think uh, living wow, a worthwhile- that's a great point. That's a great point right there. Yeah, and it's... Uh, it's easy to like get lost with the propaganda what love is which is like a romantic comedy and you ride off into the sunset but um (laughs) but it's not and every parent knows and you know you're you would step in front of an 18 wheeler to to really protect somebody you love um especially your child but but yeah and i would put joining um being a leo a law enforcement officer or agent um up on that list just like military where they're willing to die for the mission, which is noble, that's how you know you're on the right path. You're you're kind of willing to die for it. Yeah. And and there are worse things than death uh, as a human being. A lot worse. You could live your whole life existing and never live. And um, I I really think it's worth risking a tough life or worth risking your own life to live a valuable life. 
So you don't you're not on your deathbed like regretting like all the years that just went by and you played it safe. That's Therein nice. lies a lot of the comparisons between your book and mine, <laughs> which we talk about. You know, sure you're working hard in a blue collar world, but you're playing hard too, and you have the ability to do that and make those choices. And I think that's that's some of the difference. So let let's get to the opposite is true. Okay, I'm going to show everyone this book. This is an amazing book. You sourced not only your own experiences, but you also sourced so many super minds that came up with these great sayings and these great statements and these great words to live by, if you will. And it's a it's a very, very powerful book. Tell me why you decide to name it The Opposite is True. I think, first of all, it sounds kind of cool. It does, yeah. <laughs> I, I like that. And I like the fact that the title in itself is a paradox, which adds the mystery we were talking about before, like with the FBI or sometimes just keeping your mouth shut. Like, sure. what's he going to say next? I'm not going to hint at it. So there's power in mystery. And as a flawed Christian, I acknowledge God's divine um, influence on our life if we're open to it. So I think the opposite is true. Just being a paradox makes you ask the question, what does that mean? So in reality, after people read my book, they'll instantly realize, look, context matters. So the opposite is true by itself without context is a paradox. Is right. it if it's true, then it's false. If it's false, then it's true. So you have to, I'm telling the reader, you have to always consider context. So when you have a guy waiting at three in the morning outside of a, of a gay bar to be released so they could bash that person because they hate gay people, like what happened in Florida. Mm -hmm. My theory is that person is a gay person who hates that part of themselves. That's why they're projecting so loud this intense hatred. And as a, somebody who worked civil rights, who worked hate crimes, I see that for, I'd say, all hate crime. The part of the mindset or the profile of the bad guy is a self-hating person who just chose a scapegoat, whether it be Jewish people, Black, Brown people, Asian people, whatever the hate is, it's self-hate. And they they found a scapegoat and then groupthink along with their other hatred, racists, or bigots that they're attacking. And there's energy there because emotion is the energy. And the opposite is true. Somebody who's content and giving and loving and productive, they don't have to peacock and be loud. They just live their life. They could take it or leave it if somebody wants to participate, be part of the team or not. They've got the North Star. They don't have to pull anybody off their wall. They're busy focusing on their North Star and breaking up those goals and building their team. And putting up boundaries on the negative Nancys or the or the vampires that are trying to pull them down. That's a, so, that's a lot like the some dares versus the two dares, where where it's that the club you talk that we talk about, where you know yes. there are people that don't want you to leave that club because they need the commiseration, they need it badly, they want they want to justify their own existence by commiserating with you and yours, and that is so important. And is that what you kind of mean by counterintuitive psychology when you say that? Yeah, I just found in, in general, most truths are counterintuitive and paradoxical. It takes, I think this is a God design thing. It takes some effort to truly gather wisdom, to truly see what's what's going on in the world. It's not what's dictated to you. It's what you've assessed, adapt, and overcome, what you've thought through. So when you make yourself vulnerable, for example, 
I put this on my website. When you make yourself vulnerable, you're actually making yourself stronger. Just like when you tear muscle fibers, when you work out to build muscle. Sure. So that's kind of a one example of how I see God's always trying to tell us these things in different ways where you're tearing muscle to get stronger on the surface. I just tore muscle. I'm going to be weaker now, but the opposite's true. I'm working out. Now, if I rip it out, that's taking a concept out of context and missing the whole point, which people do because emotion will skew reality. So you learn to balance, you learn to take in the context, and then you strategize. And all that requires thinking. One of the big takeaways that I just think could help any human is also counterintuitive, how humility is the only path to wisdom. Most people don't like being humbled, including myself. And life will humble you whether you like it or not. You get in a car accident, you you break your femur bone, you get diagnosed with cancer, you get divorced, whatever the, the adversity is, you'll be humbled by it. But we have a choice when we're when we're humbled. We could embrace the wisdom that comes with it and learn from it and change our trajectory. Or we could say, damn it, life sucks. The world's against me and get in the fetal position and just give up. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's great that you say that because you're actually going right into my next question. You talk about the humility of plain language is easiest to digest. And I've always felt that being extremely simple <laughs> in the things that I say and do and teach, you know, without trying to throw five syllable words or the fact that I don't have any letters after my name, I don't have any college degree, none of that. Yeah. I've always thought that that's always the best way to be. And I think that's why what, what we do is, is, is so effective and what you've written is so effective. So you talk about um, it's so important to acknowledge a higher power, even over your particular belief system. And you connect that somehow to humility. Can you expand upon that a little bit? Yeah. So how I said, how life will humble you, you know, we all, we're all mortal. We get sick, we get in accidents and we have losses as part of life. You could get ahead of that with strategy by proactively humbling yourself as an access. It's the only access to wisdom is what I contend. So you might as well embrace that fact, that human behavioral fact, and be proactive about it. And I give uh, three actionable suggestions on how to embrace humility and be proactive about it. And one of them is acknowledging a higher power. We are not. Um, it is so unrealistic arrogant and naive to think that this all happened by chance right <laughs> just this organic globule where that eventually kept reproducing until we formed you know frogs to apes to us that is so random and and mathematically unrealistic yeah and, and how how bees happen to accidentally carry pollen on their legs to the next flower and all that yeah. grand design yeah, a whole it, network it, right yeah a whole network, not just the planet Earth, but of the universe. Right. Um, and how it's perfectly timed. And believe me, physics is way over my head, but I, I get the idea. You know, it's all connected. So I believe it's an intelligent to believe in an intelligent designer. And because my book is secular in the, in the, um, in the interest of intellectual honesty, I'm revealing I'm a flawed Christian. This is my point of view. But I want the, the reader to at least acknowledge a higher power. And the analogy I'll give in the book to help kind of nudge somebody who's on the fence is um, I'll give the example of the insect ants. Ants on some level know that these 
large beans that overshadow their homes on on picnic tables and or at soccer meetings, you know, on weekends. Um, and they sometimes run over their homes. They know we exist on some level, but I'm very confident that they don't know. We write books, we have podcasts, we have relationships, we drive cars. They probably don't know any of that stuff. It doesn't change the fact that any of that is real. Right. So when we humble ourselves and think of ourselves as a, like an insect from God's point of view, God thinks of us as loving children, the children he loves. But if we humble ourselves and think of ourselves as just mere mortal humans, that God knows a lot more about us and what's best for us that we could never fathom. It just puts it into a, a realistic perspective that God created this universe that interact, interacts perfectly. And we should acknowledge that without ex- expecting to understand it all. That's why I love the paradox of the title or the par- any paradox. This sentence is false. Like that sentence is a paradox. Right. If it's false, then it's true. If it's true, then it's false. You can't win. But God inserts these things on purpose so we won't get it. It's just like a wake up call saying, hey, just listen to me. Relax and listen. Yeah. Let it be. And look, I'm guilty of rebellion as much as anybody. Right. But my point is, I know God has our best interests despite everything. So that's acknowledging a higher power. So again, for someone, I don't, I don't mean to interrupt you, but for someone yeah. out there who wants to practice the engagement of humility, number one, realize you're not the shit. I mean, there's yeah. something way beyond you. You know, I have friends who have nice boats in Lauderdale. And every time you pull up to a dock, there's a bigger boat and a bigger boat and a bigger boat. So, yeah. I mean, realize that you aren't the end all. There's always this higher power and, and, and allow that to just chill you out a little bit. So that's step one. Yeah. Because when you're chilled out, you're humbled. And yeah. when you're humbled, I'll give an analogy uh, later that I think, you know what I'm, I'm going to say, but I'll give the other two recommendations on how to proactively humble yourself. Acknowledging the higher power, number one, uh, gratitude, number two, just giving a mere thank you to somebody is a humbling act right. because you're acknowledging something you're grateful for, whether it's breathing your air or somebody giving you a birthday present or or whatever it is. There's a lot to be grateful for that all of us forget because we get complacent. The sure. fish doesn't know it's wet, you know? Yeah, right. Get used to things. Um, so gratitude is an easy second one. And uh, deliberately, proactively thinking about those things to be grateful for is humbling. Which you know, I have a I have an eighty seven dollar way to practice gratitude that you only pay for one time. Okay, and and th- I have this in my house every morning. In, in in my I have a pub off the first floor of my house, off the kitchen, and that's where I do my protein shake creation every morning. I have like twelve ingredients, and it takes five minutes, and I can do it in my sleep. But I have this rotating frame there. And this rotating frame has my family and my friends and the things I've done and the places I've been and the memories I've created and the people I've loved and the people that have loved me and the people that have left me and all of that. um, You just stare at that thing while you're making your morning shake and you're just filled with gratitude because these are things that have come into your life. And I think we forget those things because sometimes you go downstairs and you pull out the, you know, the old book that has all the photographs in it and you open it up and you're like, Oh my God, there's so many cool things that I forgot that I've done in my life. Right. Right. They're stuffed away in a box. Okay. So 
yeah, I mean, it, I'm not trying to sell frames here, but that's one way to practice great gratitude is not only to, because then you do, you do want to go out and thank those people. And you do want to remember those people and hug those people and call those people and go to lunch with those people because you had such great things that happened with them and, and through them and for them. And yeah, I just think that's one way to practice gratitude. So I, I love it. Is it like a collage? Like visually, does it look like a collage? No, the frames, these pictures just rotate. You put a oh, picture in there. And just, yeah. You, every, you just take a picture and you email it to the frame. And then every day they just rotate about. one after another, after another, after another, and they're all random. So there's a no that's order. It's a healthy practice. It's a, yeah, I, I love it. I look at it every single day and I think, man, I am so grateful for the things that have happened to me so far. So just anyways, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but that's a good way to put step two into place for uh, being humility or having. I think that's, that's a great idea. And I also contend that you having that morning practice just fills you with not just gratitude, but also wisdom of help. And I think wisdom is what helps you innovate. You're supposed to business guy. So it's, it's the proof is in the pudding. (laughs) So that's great. Um, Step three. Step three is living a life of service. And I think this is a life hack. When you serve others, we get out of our own, like we all have these neurotic things, especially productive people. Like I could have done this better. And why did this happen? And just we we get in our heads and it becomes like um, firing a gun inside of a vault or just or or a firecracker inside of a vault. We're just um, hurting ourselves. And so serving others is a very proactive, tangible way to get out of your head and do something meaningful, which indirectly humbles you and then gives you wisdom as well, because you're, you're gaining perspective when you get out of your own head and the more distance you can get, I'll give the analogy of like visualizing our planet earth, our home from space. And it just gives you an amazing perspective that a few astronauts have seen literally for themselves but that perspective is just amazing. And when you serve others, you get perspective and you could kind of like recenter. Um, the analogy that uh, a pastor out here in Southern California, Greg Laurie, um, said was fruit grows in valleys and not on mountaintops. And I use that quote so many times because it's just such a great visual. Our North Star, our life purpose, imagine it's like we have to climb to reach the summit of our North Star. And those climbs are hard. The air is thinner, there's obstacles, there's negative Nancy throwing rocks at us. Sure. And we'll eventually fall off, roll off, and land in the valley, face down in this wet valley. But where there's water, there's adversity, that's where the wisdom is because we're humbled. We have just been knocked off the mountain, so we're humbled. And so what I said suggest is get your head out of the water, look around, that's where the flowers are. That's where the fruit of wisdom is. So grab that fruit, take bites, nourish yourself, stuff it in your pockets, and then gain that wisdom and reacquire a better, smarter, more strategic trajectory and resume your climb with the sustenance of the wisdom. And there'll be still people climbing alongside you trying to, hey, we let's just take the chair left. You know, people pretending to be your friend. Right. You really have to be objective about these pseudo friends because the bad guys wear masks they can't handle revealing their their inner weaknesses their inner insecurities so they'll deceive they'll manipulate as long as you don't succeed because that'll make them feel worse about themselves so that's where the boundaries 
come to play. So you, you, there's, there's a couple of the things that I want to get to, and I want to end because humility seems to be a theme throughout the book. It is. Yeah. So just, just a couple of things before I kind of cap that thought. Okay. Without emotion, we would be deprived of the most important ingredient necessary for creative inspiration. And that is energy. Right. So this was in the context of me pointing out that emotion and logic don't mix. They're like oil and water. So one is not better than the other. Um, they're just different. So um, if a logical person has their taxes filed, their closet is clean, and they they know how to get to work and back, and their house is functional, but they don't have any um, emotion in their life, they don't stop to smell the flowers, they don't recognize the sunrises, they don't enjoy music, then what's the point of living? Sure. The whole sure. Dead Poet Society kind of stuff. Um, your younger viewers will have to look that one up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and on the other side, I claim that emotion is our energy source. It's the most powerful energy that humans have is emotion. Any decision we ever make, even if it's just picking up a pen and, and putting it back down, there's some kind of emotion behind it. So emotion is so powerful that I'll compare it to like the, the turret of the top of a tank. It'll blast and create chaos or really uh, a righteous uh, blast. So that's where the thinking part, they have to work together. You have to know where to point the turret or to have your emotional energy worthwhile. So once you do the assessment part, assess, adapt, and overcome is the mantra in my book. So you assess first, figure out your context, put it all into perspective, adapt to it. Once you realize and accept these truths that are sometimes uncomfortable, you will now, now, now know how to direct it. And then you pull the trigger once you know exactly what you're going to need to implement or want to uh, strategize to reach your next goal. And that's where the emotion comes. Like, why is it important to you? What do you want your life to look differently than what your parents went through or, or whatever? That's where the North Star is. But that emotion will fuel the whole path. But you have to think and think objectively to to be able to assess those uh, goals you need to accomplish to eventually get there. So my theory there is that emotions obviously are choices. And my, my, my theory is also that the emotional part of our brain is like a crowded bar and there's a line to get in and there's a bouncer and he only can let people in if people are coming out. Okay. Oh, interesting. So, yeah. so, so, you know, joy can't get in if frustration is in the bar. Okay. Spontaneity like can't analogy, get in yeah. if, you know, if jealousy is in the bar. And so you have to really, that bouncer, and which is you, has to make a choice about what emotions that they let in and realize that they are a choice. What do you think people get wrong about their own emotional practices? First of all, I like that analogy. It's a capacity issue. Right. I think what people get wrong is um, we're, we're mostly emotional beings. It's more interesting to emote than it is to think. Henry Ford said, uh, thinking is hard to do. That's why so few people do it. <laughs> and I love that. Um, and he was obviously an accomplished person. Sure. But we're all emotional animals, so we might as well work with that. Like I enjoy surfing and, and waves can destroy you, so you might as well go and sink with it as much as you can. They'll humble you anyway. But that powerful energy of emotion 
we might as well learn to surf with it, be in sync with it. Like I, I compare it to like a rain cloud or a storm. Emotions are chaotic. And once the clouds kind of clear and we calm ourselves down and take a breath, only then can we recognize other people's points of view. So I think what most people end up, the mistake most people make is making decisions while they're emotional, even if they're happy. So emotions aren't always bad. Sometimes just being in love with the wrong person could be a bad decision, but it's emotional. So it's powerful. So your better judgment will not take the stage because you're emoting so much. Right. We can think back to our teenage years and, and really that will resonate, you know? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's what the, the answer to your question is we emotion is so powerful that just being a human being, you're probably going to make some bad decisions while you're emoting. But if you want to make wise strategic decisions, make a deliberate effort to calm yourself and compartmentalize your emotion from your logic, good or bad, just so you could think about it clearly and then decide how to move forward. I love that. And, and that, that's that's what brings me to the wrap up part of just that humility part. So humility is very important, is very prevalent throughout the book. And I, I love I love it because we can all use this. We can all you, we could practice that this afternoon. I mean, today you could use those three steps and put them into place. How did being someone in such a uh, powerful, mysterious, sometimes violent sometimes thankless, but such an honorable profession. I mean, you came from that world. How did you morph that into, you know what, humility is really the thing here? Right. I actually came about it as a kid interested in human behavior. And I start out my book with the with a simple humbling story that in, in retrospect, it's not that big a deal at all, but context is everything and perspective is everything. So I was... Um, one year younger, I'm a September baby. So I was one year younger than most of the, uh, all, most of the other kids, probably all the other kids when I, not in first, well, in first grade too, but in second grade, when kids are starting to be different, they're growing faster. And the difference in one year is, is pretty significant. It's a lot. Sure. So I was six. Everybody else was roughly seven or turning seven in second grade. And I was, most kids were great, and I, but I was bullied by a couple of kids who were a lot bigger than me and probably just saw a, a nice, sweet, vulnerable mouse that they could pick on. And they did. And I remember asking myself, why would somebody choose to be mean when they could simply be nice? I uh, genuinely had this question. Like, I really wanted that answer. Like, what the hell? Yeah. And as a nice, innocent, naive kid, you know, I had that question because I really, it didn't make sense to me um, because life, you know, just could be fun instead of mean. Now I understand it very clearly. And the answer is those kids, those two bullies felt much weaker than even I did. And if they saw like this happy go lucky, sweet kid, there would be envy, jealousy, negative Nancy traits in there. Sure, so sure. they're going to lash out. And the analogy I give everybody is what do you think of Ken when when the doorbell I know you have bigger dogs but imagine you had like a Chihuahua or a little Yorkie what would the reaction be when the doorbell rang right what what would you what do you think of yapping and oh sure screaming yelling crazy yeah and then why would they go crazy I mean you know they were trying to project themselves as strong brave hey whatever's on the other side you better yeah. back off right well your your retrievers or a great dane or a german shepherd would be passed out asleep relaxed right 
they know they could get up, eat the bad guy, go back to sleep with a full tummy. No worries. Right. Right. So law enforcement people, military people with training or just men who have gone, grown through tough times and learn how to handle themselves. They're not worried at all. The guys on your construction sites, they've been through fights. They know, they know the, the chihuahuas from the German shepherds or whatever. Right. So it's part of being a man growing up and learning these things, but bullies, criminals, tyrants, that nagging family member at the Christmas dinners, they're coming from a place of weakness, not strength. So I'm trying to encourage my reader and your audience that the people they're thinking about right now as they listen to us that are always nagging and picking and paying too much attention to them, it's because they're weak, not strong. Maybe it's a boss, so they have power over them, but they're coming from a place of weakness so that should be encouraging, at least to some degree, to my reader and your audience. And that's where you get, you write, any extreme behavior is indicative of the opposite being true. Yes. So like the the gay basher is waiting at the bar at three in the morning. That's pretty extreme. Active shooters, that's pretty extreme. Or some family member or or a neighbor that's just always on your case, but there's no real contextual reason why they should be. Those are red flags to anticipate and predict the bad guys from afar. I could read people's minds a mile away when they think they're being clever, when they're screaming at the doorbell. Yeah, you know, yeah. I see the chihuahuas from far away. I don't have to worry about the the content good people like yourself because you you lay it all out on the table. You are take it or leave it. Sure. That's what winners do, frankly. That's what successful people do because they don't have to prove anything. They don't have to bark their, their lungs out. So this is all good news, by the way. Sure. You can spot the bad guy. It doesn't mean they're not dangerous. Terror still exists. Serial killers exist. Rapists exist. But it does mean don't ignore your natural human instinct that are telling you they're barking at the doorbell. They're chihuahuas. Be careful. There's a story that I really need to nail down because it's a very applicable story of a woman who was on a date with a guy and she just had a weird feeling. She couldn't put her finger on it. And nowadays people would say, don't judge other people, be open-minded and all that sort of thing. Right. She walked out on that date and she called a friend and said, hey, come pick me up. This was before cell phones. And it turned out she was watching the news one day, a few days after that, maybe a week later. It was Ted Bundy who had been. Oh my God. <laughs> she was on a date with Ted Bundy. Oh my God. An infamous serial killer. And talk about listening to your instinct. Wow. So I got to look up that so I could refer to the lady's name, but if it's out there, but it, it's, it's so apropos to, I mean, sometimes it's just like this person's going to swindle me out of this business deal. I need to pay attention. Yeah. It always have to be life and death or terrorism or, you know, it applies to business. Yeah. But I got to tell you, you know, this is such an amazing book. And, and as I told you off camera earlier, there's four podcasts worth of material in this book that we could talk about. It's so well done. It's, it's a book that somebody shouldn't just read. They should kind of like ingest as they go, read this and ingest it and read it more and ingest it and read more kind and ingest deep, it. Yeah. yeah and, and kind of practice it. Which, which is really what I love about that, because any good book like The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, you, you read that and practiced it as you did it. And you, people still have that book. I still have it sitting on the shelf behind me over here. And I still One of the most successful books, yeah. 
Yeah. So I, I feel like your book is something that p- people can read and use and keep reading and keep using to like long-term improve themselves, you know, not just a quick shot uh, overnight self-help. I love it. So congratulations on that. There's so many other things that, that we could talk about, but I mean, we're, we're already to our point here. So I okay. always ask people these, these questions, because I believe that we all have our own vision or version or level or perfect picture of our nirvana. If I yep. could live like that, that would be so cool. Okay. So I want to ask you, um, Ephraim, I believe that, that comfort, peace, and freedom is what we should all strive for or chase. And this came from a letter I was writing to my daughter when she was suffering from cancer a long time ago. She's fine now, but it was to me, I've been running this business for all these years. I've been chasing, you know, success and dollars, but, but being grateful the whole time. And I had a certain level of living that I wanted to do. And once I got there, I was done and I did it. And, and I don't need to go beyond that because I'm grateful and I'm good and I'm content. Right. I thought, you know what? Everybody has their own level of what, what this is. If I asked a hundred people to draw a vacation on a piece of poster board, they'd all draw a different type of vacation, right? It would all, right. some of them might be similar, but they'd all be their own version of that. So I came up with the words comfort, peace, and freedom. And these words just would not leave my brain. I mean, they like a, like a triangle of interdependent concepts. So right. I, I ask everyone, I'm going to throw this this one your way. Where does Efren find himself the most comfortable? That's great. I've got, you know, context always matters. So I'll often talk about comfort in a negative way where um, I think people are just uh, denying their North Star. But in reality, comfort is when you follow your North Star, take all those, get all those battle scars, learn from the adversity and really come to the other side and accomplish it. So I think... Comfort for me would be no debt, fulfilling my life's mission, community teaching these concepts to people, helping benefit their lives. Because I, I think there's a lot of the bad guys are so good at the propaganda. They want to tell you yeah. you'll never make it. They want to tell you that it's good for other people, but you should do something else. Just be a, a spoke on a wheel, just stay, pat you on the head and push you along. So comfort for me would be having other people reach their goals and me knowing I had a little part in that and pushing that. there. So let me push a little further than that. Where would you say in like your daily life, like on the weekend, something way more dialed down? Where, uh-huh. are, you, where are you your most comfortable? Are you fishing? Are you sitting around your house watching football? Are you hanging out with your family? Like what, what where is, where is Ephraim the most comfortable? My, my Zen would be, a nice surfing session in the ocean, coming back home with a nice plate of comfort food and a nice movie. Perfect. That, that, right that's my, my Efren comfort Zen. Right. So you covered peace in that one too, because you said the word Zen. <laughs> so I'm sure you're very peaceful. For me, I'm peaceful when I'm on the golf course, walking, you know, walking a golf course, never, never riding unless I have to or when I'm on my boat somewhere, somewhere where I can't see the shore, shoreline. So what about freedom? Where do you feel the most freedom uh, just in your daily life? In my daily life. So not too deep, but more in the, just like my own world of it. I would feel the most freedom if I didn't have to pay so many bills. I think financial freedom allows you to focus on what you enjoy the most. And I'm not talking about vacation. I mean, the, I would love to keep writing and speaking to different groups, 
and and be able to do that without having to still work so many security type of things. Sure. I think I will always work doing this sort of bodyguard work because I enjoy it. I just don't want to have to do it. Right. So if right. I could find financial freedom so that I could focus and prioritize my work, that would be amazing to me. Got it. Perfect. That's that's awesome. For me, it's um, I, again, I'm going real simple here. For me, it's just taking my dogs for a walk in the park. I mean, it's just, you know, you're you're running into strangers who also have dogs. You have this like-minded mentality. And, uh, you know, it's just a kind of a freeing thing to be in that perfect air that's not corrupted by, you know, cars and traffic and sounds and noise and all that stuff. And so um, just a, a nice, calm, perfect day. Um, th- this has been such a great conversation. I, I really appreciate you being with me here today. Efren Delgado, it's called The Opposite is True. And um, this will be a book that you grab, you start reading it, you start practicing it, you leave it on your table, you read a little more, you use a little more, and you get your way through it and become a better person for having done it. So uh, Efren Delgado, thank you so much for being here today. I, I really appreciate your time. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun, Ken. Thank you. Well, there you have it. Some great information from some pretty amazing people. Thank you for taking time to listen to today's show, and I hope that you found some value in what you just heard. If this show positively impacted you in any way, please take a minute to leave a positive review or share it with a friend who could benefit from the Comfort, Peace, and Freedom podcast. I'm Ken Rusk. Until next time, I'll talk to you soon.